Thanks for tuning into this month's episode of the Cinematic Schematic. In order to keep this program going, we need your help. That's right, you, the listener. If you enjoy the ad-free programming of the Cinematic Schematic, please support the show by subscribing to the podcast and giving us a rating and review on iTunes. So please give us a rating, review, and a follow. Enjoy the show. everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and in today's program, we'll be wrapping up our December theme of misunderstood movie monsters. First, Laron Chapman and I will review the highly anticipated and critically lauded film from Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water. This is probably Guillermo's, you know, most emotional film. It has the same sensibilities of Pan's Labyrinth. Later, Alexandra Bohannon and I will dissect the film themes of some of the big screen's most iconic movie monsters. The Japanese thought that the, the tragedy of the atomic bomb, of course, the metaphor of Godzilla, was being used against them for capitalistic gains, so they thought that someone was purposely taking advantage of the situation. In closing out today's show, I talk with a panel of Oklahoma City's finest film experts, including filmmaker Rogelio Almeida Jr., the Oklahoman's Nathan Poppy, and Lit Reactor's Christopher Schultz about one of Del Toro's most beloved films, Pan's Labyrinth, from the recently reopened Tower Theater. There's kind of this idea of perfection and a fairy tale ending, and Guillermo all, all but just smashes the, <laughs> the light out over that, and you see something a lot darker and a lot weirder. All of this is coming to you on the Cinematic Schematic, next. Welcome to this month's edition of Silver Screen Soliloquies. I'm the voice of the Cinematic Schematic, your Cinematropolis radio station and film critic here at the Cinematropolis, Caleb Masters. And joining me in this segment is, as always, is the writer and director of the upcoming film, You People, and also cinema lover extraordinaire, Laron Chapman. Laron, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, hey. Good to be back. This month at the Cinematropolis, uh, we've been looking at misunderstood movie monsters in December. We said, yeah, it's Christmas time. Everyone's talking about Christmas stuff. We have Christmas thoughts. But you know what? You know what's even bigger deal this month is Guillermo del Toro's new movie, The Shape of Water. That's a big deal. And we were so excited about it and fascinated with some of the ideas that we saw in the tra- just in the trailers alone that we're like, hey, let's theme an entire month on something del Toro is very passionate about, which is a misunderstood movie monsters. He's a director who is in love with a lot of monsters. Uh, He he thinks they're beautiful creatures and often very misunderstood and likes to really explore that territory. So we've said, hey, we're going to have a whole month dedicated to essays at the Cinematropolis and on the Cinematic Schematic. Uh, So today we are going to be getting into the review of Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Laurent. Yes. Before we jump into our actual review, we've got to talk a little bit about Guillermo del Toro. He's a beloved yes. icon. Yes, he's one of the great auteurs, yeah. Here's the thing about del Toro that I love. 
there are a lot of directors I want to give a hug because, like, I think they're awesome. I want to meet them and stuff. I want to give Del Toro a hug. I want to buy that man a drink. And I just want to <laughs> sit down and listen to him talk. And talk, yeah. Like, what is, I want to pick his brain apart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, man, because he's, he's just so smart. So, uh, firstly, I think he's, he, uh, again, <laughs> never having met him personally, but just through uh, interviews and commentaries and, and, and the ideas he articulates in his films, he seems like a genuinely wonderful human being. Yeah, very genial. Yeah. But let's get into the actual movies. He's directed some beloved Spanish-speaking films like Pan's Labyrinth, which we'll be talking about later on in uh, this edition of Cinematic Schematic with some special panelists. But he also uh, did The Devil's Backbone. And uh, so those are mm-hmm. definitely like art- very hard Artur del yes. Toro. This is like he's doing his own his own independent stories, I guess. They're not really independent, but they're his stories. Yeah, his version of things, yeah. Uh, but del Toro, what is so fun about him is that is just one side of the man. And on the other side, we have studio genre films like Rock'em Sock'em Robots or as I like to say Pacific Rim uh, (laughs) where he he got to make his kaiju movie because he loves kaiju he loves Japan so that's like his love letter we get Crimson Peak which is like his love letter to gothic romance and Edgar Allan Poe and of course we can't go on without mentioning the first big one for him Blade 2. I mean, oh the best of the Blade movies. I, you almost forget that he did that, but when you think about it, it's like, you know, that was the best Blade movie. So it that was. Is, that, explains, that explains that he did it. See, and, and what's cool about that was, that, like, Blade, I actually think the first Blade's pretty good, too. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the yeah. CGI doesn't hold up at all. I watched it semi-recently, mm-hmm. and I was like, dude, this movie's great. And then at the end, and you're like, whoa. But the second one, man, like, he just... Some of the practical effects he used with those mo- those monsters were some of the scariest monsters, like the scariest vampires you've ever seen. See where they dissect it? Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, and their mouths how they expand and kind of you know like those nasty tongues that, that lash out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was always here with us. We just didn't know where he was going. That's right. See, he was Del Toro before we knew who Del Toro was. Exactly, you yeah. know, back when we were just eating popcorn and watching some Wesley Snipes action, which, by the way, I still think Blade One and Two are great. Uh, Blade Three is another story, but that that's for another <laughs> another conversation for the podcast. Ron Chapman, I want to hear a little bit about your relationship with Del Toro films. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because I guess technically Blade Two would have been the first film that I'd seen of his, unbeknownst to who he was, but. I think the first time I was privy to who uh, Del Toro was, it was definitely Pan's Labyrinth. And it was here locally in the city, too. I remember seeing it, not knowing it was a foreign film. And then immediately not having a refined cinema palette at that particular point in time. Was it 11 years ago? Uh, 2006, yeah. So 11 years ago. 11 years ago. God, so I was, yeah, I was a, a, a wee little teen. And I remember seeing it and immediately being taken back by the fact that there was subtitles and because I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't exactly watching so many of those at that particular time. And I remember it didn't matter by the time I was done with it because even like from the first image, it's it's so beautiful. First of all, and he's such a visual storyteller that the the, the dialogue in his films is supplementary as it always should be in any film. But it just so much is communicated to you visually that it doesn't matter. And he's he's going to engage you, you know, in any story that he wants to tell, no matter what the subject matter is. So yeah, I would say that. Pan's Labyrinth was probably my first real introduction to who he is. That's a, that's a great introduction because I, I really th- feel like that's a very personal film, and it was it was all in Spanish. But I, I feel like maybe just for, this might just be for our, our age demographic. But that was the first one that it 
and maybe it was the fairy tale spin. It had a big enough splash that we're all like, ooh, I want to see that. That looks interesting. Right. Well, and I want to say this came out at the same time when there was a big resurgence in the fantasy genre because that was post uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Uh, so every studio, there was like that. What were some other, and there's a bunch of a bunch of these little ones that came out that were like yeah. kind of fairy tale fantasy stories about this time in like the 2004, 5, 6, 7 I era. I feel like we were in that. The last Mimsy or something like that. Yeah. Like there, there was a lot of stuff. We were in that, the heart of of the Lord of the Rings and uh, Harry Potter, yeah, Harry era, Potter era. Yeah. So that, yeah. so the fantasy world was very popular, a very popular genre at the time. So and, that, and maybe that's what it was, like, because we were all thinking about, it, like, oh man, this looks really cool. And this one looks, it's darker. So I mean, right. especially, you know, I think this came out. Yeah, I was in high school, so you're right. like, oh yeah, I'm ready for the dark, edgy stuff. And now. it was like, kind of, it was probably a good film for the entry. I'm waiting probably for the next November release of a Harry Potter film. Oh, of course. I'm assuming, but yeah. But, but I mean, uh, yeah, so it really, I think for, for a lot of folks, my, my first experience was also, uh, again, where the first time I watched it, I said, oh, this is Del Toro, mm-hmm. was Pan's Labyrinth. Of course, I had seen Blade II uh, before that. And I, I remember seeing Pan's Labyrinth and being like, holy crap, this movie is twisted. The reason it stands out so much is like, that was clearly... There was a very clear story he was trying to tell. His vision was so distinct because it's this aesthetic. Every all the details were just so perfect. You're like, dude, how you can't not appreciate? You can't, and it's like, who who did this? Guillermo del Toro, okay. And this is before everyone had the internet, so I didn't IMDb him. But I remember when looking at future films from him, it's like, oh. Del Toro, I've seen this guy I've before. I've seen that guy before, yeah. His Labyrinth guy? Yeah. Oh, wow, okay. It's literally, the they use that film as kind of, for anyone who doesn't watch foreign films, as their icebreaker Yes. For it. Because I'm like, you'll watch this. I know you're going to watch it because there's so much to, to be engaged with. So, I mean... There's no way you're not going to watch this film and feel something for right. it. You know, so. I think that's a great, this would be a great time to go ahead and segue right into our review for the day, which is going to be Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. she deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. You clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. Okay, so for those of you listening out there, the uh, IMDb synopsis for Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water reads, In a 1960s research facility, a mute janitor forms a relationship with an aquatic creature. <laughs> and that's all you got. That's all, I, that's that's all, all IMDb gives you. That's all you need, really. <laughs> yeah. Just, see the, just watch the trailer and then read this and you're good to go. The, the way the show works, for new listeners, we're going to give our review, our recommendation briefly. But we're going to spend a lot more time going into full-blown spoilers, analysis territory. And this film especially, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of meat on the bones with, with this one. Um, so, Laurent, go ahead and kick us off. Like, What, what are kind of your initial thoughts on The Shape of Water? I think this is probably Guillermo's, you know, most emotional film. It has similar to the same sensibilities of Pan's Labyrinth, but um, it feels like, you know, we're always dealing with kind of the same themes in his film, but it's just so damn pretty to look at, like, throughout. Like, his attention to detail is still just really extraordinary in every facet of it. Like, if they open a cupboard... Every dish in that damn cupboard is like is part of production value. Like they 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 found those dishes, they put them in there. Like all these things. Like there's just there's nothing in it 
that isn't in some way, you know, just making his stories richer and more and more alive and fresh. And I, I loved it. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. I think it's, it's, if not, I don't, I think Pan's Lab will always be the beat, you know, the, the standard. I think this is a great companion piece of very strong effort. Definitely one of his top three best films. So I think this is about his best, uh, American film. Oh, absolutely. I think this is his best, uh, film. that's like an English, uh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, uh, you, you know, this is a, a movie I, I've very much been looking forward to. And I was a, a little concerned I would uh, overhype it. Uh, but, you know, what's great about this movie, uh, much like uh, The Post, which is uh, I wrote a review for The Post uh, on, on the Cinematropolis website, the, that's Steven Spielberg's new movie, uh, a film that feels very much like it's of the time. Yeah. Now, I know that Del Toro, of course – has probably been fascinated and been working on this script for a long time, but it came out in 2017. And this is a story that very much feels like it's of our time. Yeah. It's about things that we're going to talk about more later, but it's about things like how do we handle our fear of the other, whatever the other is. And I, I think this movie does a great job at really breaking down these preconceived ideas we have about not just the, not just the amphibian man, man, yeah. but, but people. People, yeah, human. even the bad guys. You know, everyone's everyone's human, and there's there's something to that. And and Del Toro takes great care in all of the characters here, making sure that they do feel like they are real people that are driven by a lot of different things. Uh, I think I love that you mentioned his attention to detail and the and the setting and the set design. His set design, of course, is outstanding, uh, Oscar worthy for sure, for certain. But I think what what's just as important to me is also the way he's able to recreate. The, the 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 mood of the 1960s. We're, yeah. we're looking at right after uh, the 1950s, kind of the, the peak of conservatism, American conservatism. Rachel tensions really high. Rachel tensions very high. Uh, we're we're I think it's, this is deep in the MLK yeah. uh, Malcolm X era where there's a lot of and again these are not things that are, these things are the backdrop of what's going on in the film. Exactly, the, the, yeah. But they are a big part of the world that he's yeah. constructing here, and I love the way he takes like this period piece. And turns it into a fairy tale yeah. in America, in a, in a setting that you would not expect it to be, like because it's in America in the 1960s. There's not fairy, there's no magic in post industrial in the post industrial world. There's not really fairy tales anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think it's a really brilliant melding uh, uh, of the genres. Uh, I, I have to give a huge, crazy, big shout out to all of the performers oh, uh, yeah. in this movie. Absolutely, A plus from uh, all Doug Jones guys. Doug Jones is a product of the Andy Circus syndrome. <laughs> Where he's doing incredible, outstanding work, like brilliant, without ever having to to, to talk. It's and like he's wearing the mask, and and I get it. Like he he's playing these full bodied characters and like creatures that don't don't even exist, and he's giving them personalities, and they're distinct, and we recognize them. But at the end of the day, take that mask off. You know, people aren't recognizing that that guy just gave a hell of a performance that is not being recognized. Right, right. It's like we can't see who you are, so I guess you're not really a performer. You know, between right. him and Andy Serkis, it's just it's high, it's robbery. What is the shape of water without the aquatic man? You, you can't. What is Pan's Labyrinth without Pan, Pan, Pan and, the, and, and the fawn and, and yeah, and, and, and the pale man? Out. It's you. Would, they wouldn't be the movies you love, right? So. Right. So a huge shout out to Doug Jones. Sally Hawkins is fantastic yeah. in this movie. She is so good. Uh, she's mute. Yeah. I think and she's a log for an Oscar nom this year. I think so too. She, I mean, she should be. Yeah. Not a word was uttered. Well, not a word was uttered in this film from her, technically. Um, and yet you understand exactly who she is throughout. So there, there's something about to say about 
how understated and restrained her performance is. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Ab- absolutely. I, I completely agree. But you've got uh, Michael Shannon. You know, he's doing Michael Shannon's thing, but I do think there's some layers to the character that we, we see here that Michael Shannon is really just able to illuminate uh, the complexities of the uh, of the film's villain, uh, ultimately, Richard Strickland. Got Richard Jenkins. Talk about more unsung heroes in Hollywood. Yeah. Richard Jenkins is a is a an A-plus character actor who... People recognize him probably. They don't recognize his name. They recognize his face. Like, oh yeah, I've seen you in, in something somewhere. Yeah. You know, and he, he does great job, a plus every time. But no one's ever singing his praises. Right. He is great in this movie. Yeah, he's great. Octavia Spencer, Michael Stubar. This is a, a cast of un, unsung performers in Hollywood. I think right. um, so. Uh, I, yeah. So hats off to the entire cast. Well, I was going to say something I really love about uh, most of his films is he always puts his female characters in the center most of the time i mean and they have always have they always have layers they always are complex they're not they're not afterthoughts they might be treated as such by the male characters in the story but even like for example like sally hawkins is the lead here we're seeing the world from her perspective but also like octavia spencer as you mentioned is great in it and she has a lot of screen time in this and i was surprised by how much screen time Octavia. and she has a lot of uh influence in a lot of the decisions that you know that advance the plot that you know kind of uh motivate some of the main the main conflicts in the story. So I was surprised by that too. She had a lot of power in those situations. So, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time, more time in the review. We've got a lot to talk about kind of in this, uh, deep dive analysis section, but I, I, uh, I want to get your take. Uh, let's, let's make some recommendations. Was there anything that really stood out to you as like, this could have been better or, uh, you know, that was lacking a little bit. I agree with you about Michael Shannon. Um, doing a giving a great performance in it. I personally, for my own taste, thought that that his character maybe not one note, but maybe just two, you know, two gotcha. dimensional. I felt like there was one there's just there was one more element to that that I needed to, to a redeeming quality, I should say, for me to care about whatever his cause might have been. And and because he was so militantly, and this is how his character is written, and then and similar in Pan's Labyrinth, you know, the the general how he was, um, he's so hell bent on his agenda, you know what I mean? That it's 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 hard for me to relate to him. Um, but again, like I said, he's he's menacing, he's cunning. Um, but I don't know, I don't know even if at the end I truly cared about his arc, if that makes sense. But well. Okay, you know what? I'll give you that. Uh, he doesn't really have an arc. Yeah. He is pretty one note in that sense. Now, the movie does give two or three key scenes to highlight what has made him this way in, in, a, in a way that I find interesting. And that was important, yeah. And it is very important to, to the themes of the movie that we'll, we'll talk about kind of in the analysis section. But, uh, you know, this man is a product of his time. And he has been trained to act a certain way and to think a certain way, uh, especially as very, very alpha male results driven. You've got to get – I mean there's a great line at the end of the movie like about how he always delivers. There is a lot of pressure in society specifically – especially at this time. Yeah. Uh, I mean today too. But I mean especially in the 1960s about men having to be the heads of households and men having to uh, be the ones that provide. Men's being the one that uh, deliver. Uh, right. You know, it's a man's world. So, uh, you know, and there's one line – talk about it in spoilers. I really want to talk about it because it's, it's the nuances that I appreciate with him. But to your point, 
he is pretty one note. I don't think he has an arc at the in this movie. He is he is the security guard who is handling this monster at the beginning of the movie, and he's the same security he's guard the at the end. He's yeah, the villain, yeah. and there's 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 no insight really into his psyche so much as to just understand that he's a product of the environment he's in, right. which is important too. It's a good commentary on that. So right, definitely not a wasted role. I'm just uh, yeah, but yeah, but you, you were left to a little wanting, a little a little wanting, a little wanting. Okay, all right, all right, totally fair for me. I, I was having a hard time. I was really trying to break this down in my head. Like, what are some things I would change? And I, I had kind of a similar reaction I had with Pan's Labyrinth. I think that movie, it's a kind of a masterpiece, and I would argue this is kind of on that same uh, level. I need to think on it and rewatch it a couple more times. But my, for my recommendation today, uh, I think this is a damn near perfect movie. Yeah. I think it's it's great. It's relevant. It's going to weird a lot of people out. So they're going to be like, Caleb, why are you, why are you, uh, why are you telling me I should go watch this movie about uh, uh, a mute who falls in love with a fish man? Like what? Like what? What's going on there? And I think this is. One of the films, when we're looking back 10 years from now, 2017, we're going to look back and say, oh, yeah. Right. We're going to look back at The Shape of Water. This movie really meant something at the time. Yeah. And it's a really well and – and even removing that context, that social context there, it's a great movie. Yeah. Uh, so I, I highly recommend The Shape of Water. Uh, I think this is a, a must-see. Hell, it's a date movie. I mean it sounds kind of weird, but it is a very romantic – in a weird, in in a a weird, weird way. way. It is it's a, a it's a It's, it's a, a love story essentially. I mean at its love story. level, it's, it's a, a love story. It's a sci-fi movie. It's a fairy tale, all in one. All in one. Uh, so I, I can't, and I am very much looking forward to seeing how the Academy handles this one because I think this isn't. Maybe it doesn't win the awards, but this is an Academy caliber film, film. in every way. But will they embrace the weirdness right, of it? Right. But so far, the critics are. All the yeah. critics, uh, critics organizations are getting behind it. Just so singing its praises. Yeah, we'll see. Um, uh, Laurent, so how would how would you recommend this film? Um. I'd probably get my highest review. I think it's I think it's definitely one that you should see in theaters, um, and I'm sure you'll love it enough to purchase it when it comes on DVD. Oh yes, yeah. So it's a full price and uh, Blu-ray special edition. So Criterion, it's happening. All right, ladies and gentlemen. So those are our recommendations. But what we're really here to talk about today is going to take a deep dive and a closer look at some of the themes in the movie. So if you do not want to be spoiled on the Shape of Water. Here's your final warning. Check out those timestamps in the show notes and skip on to the next segment. If you uh, want to really, if you've seen it or you really don't care, really, you should, you should, you should save, save yourself uh, and not spoil yourself. But uh, we are going to be talking about some of the themes. Uh, so last warning, final right now, spoilers. The big theme of this movie is, I think, learning to love, air quotes, the other. <laughs> so in this case, it's very on the nose. Like, right. okay. Well, the, the the amphibian man. Well, maybe he's not just the swamp thing or yeah. the creature from the Black Lagoon. Maybe there's more to him than that, right? Yeah. Or you could look at. And I actually love that this movie in general features all like, the good guys in this movie are all the marginalized people. Yeah. So you've got the mute, and you've got the the uh, you know Richard Jenkins is a gay artist, mm-hmm. uh, and then you've got Octavia Spencer, who's an African American, which in the 1960s, by the way. Not exactly the you most popular. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it it makes these people the main characters, yeah. and it makes them the stars. That's interesting. You got disability. You mm-hmm. have the representation of race, and then you have a, a representation of a sexual orientation. Yes. You know, so the, those are those are three really strong groups that are you know marginalized. Too. Oh, and I forgot one too. Michael Stubarg as the Russian spy. Oh yeah. Except for he's like he is a spy, but he really is not really that interested in. 
Russia. Like he's just doing his job. Like right. he, he seems like he's way more worried, concerned about getting the creature out to safety and, and protecting for he's, science. He's, he's, he's Mueller. That's what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Stolberg playing as stars as Robert Mueller in the inevitable biopic. So he's a Russian, which again, right. at that time, I mean, hide the Cold War. Yeah. Like it's a big deal. So yeah, no, I think you're great. It, this is a, a film that stars people who have been marginalized by society, but yet... None of them are ever really afraid of Strickland until he gets violent. None of them are afraid of the white people. No, you know, it's not like, oh, these are the bad guys. It's just like, hey, this is what it's like to live in this world. And it's tragic because it does highlight, uh, you know, what these people had to deal with uh, in the day-to-day in the 1960s and, and probably pretty frequently today even. But, uh, you know, Richard Jenkins goes – he goes to that um, pie shop mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. And at the beginning, it's like, why does he go to this pie shop? Because he buys that key lime pie. He takes it home, takes a bite out of it, and puts it in his fridge. And he's got this whole fridge full of key lime pies. And you're like, yeah. It's like, so, oh, okay, what's the deal there? Oh, but then you find out later he's going back because he likes talking to the count- the boy at the counter. The guy at the counter, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, they talk. And the guy at the counter seems pretty nice. He's pretty receptive to all of his nuanced advances, you know, but it's like, it seems mutual at the time. Right, right. Well, it seems mutual and he's just talking about how he, his favorite part of the job is talking to people and getting to know people. Like, oh, this is an empathetic guy. Yeah. But the second Richard Jenkins says, man, I'd love to get you know, get to know you a little better and then do the hands, he like, the counter guy just freaks out. Freaks out. And yeah. it's like, whoa, 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 get, get away mm-hmm. and then get out of my, get, get out. Right. You know, um, so I think that's a really interesting exploration that you, the, the, the film is, is, has a unique perspective because yeah. it's starring and looking at those voices who have been, you know, marginalized or put right. down or not normally featured in, in kind films. of live covertly in the world. Like they've always been here, but here we have, they're the voices of the story, you know, right. The windows into this, this environment in the sixties. And it's, it's really fascinating to see those vantage points, you know? And so seeing it then in the horror, in the thick of it, it's really, it's really interesting just to kind of, understand it in that context yeah well you understand it in that in that context and it also kind of helps us reframe how we think through things in 2017 as well which i think uh, these are all things that have been in the conversation and politics and the internet uh in 2017 that's why again deltor has always been fascinated with stories from marginalized groups of people i mean you yeah. look at pan's labyrinth like the, the the movie's not about the war hero the movie's about the wife and daughter of the uh, uh, adopted daughter of the war hero who yeah. li- who are living under his authoritarian household. In this movie, we're, we're looking at these people who live in a society that is run by you know traditional raw raw American family values world, which is re- represented by Strickland uh, and his family. And it's I, I think it's great that the movie takes up a couple mo- a, a couple points to show that Strickland is. Really, just a guy who's trying to live his life. He's mm-hmm. he's a security guard. He's got a hard job, but I mean, like, uh, yeah, he goes home to a wife uh, who I guess he loves. He's not really sure. He just kind of seems seems pretty unhappy, honestly. Right. But he's got wife. He's got he's got his leave it to be at wife. He's got his leave it to be at uh, kids, and they're leave it to be at house. Uh, and then eventually, he goes to shop for a really nice car, and he buys himself a Cadillac. Right. And, and uh, I guess I'm talking to about his about. I mean, circling back to you know, uh, his, his character and, and my issues I kind of had with him. I do understand though, that, you know, him being a product of this environment, it does feel like he is fulfilling an expectation that yes. society has put out in front of him. And I guess it is important to, to comment on particularly at that time, because it feels like, um, whether he wants these things or not, there's, there's, there's kind of, I mean, a, a norm that is expected of him. And if, 
he deviates from that, then he becomes one of the others. That, yes, that become, exactly. There is a okay, and this is the, there is one scene that for for me personally, Ron, Laurent really put it over for me. It's the scene where he's talking to the general, the guy who's his neck. He reports to yeah, All right? Who comes back and says, you know. You don't. So the creature has escaped at this point, and he's been unable to recapture it. And this general says, "You've got thirty-six hours. You know, if if you don't make it, you're just going to have to go live in a. This will be a whole other world. You'll live in your own little world separate from this." And he's like, "But I've. He's like, "But I've. We've known each other for like what fifteen years or something like that. We've worked together. I have never let you down one time. Yeah. Does one mistake? Does one mistake ruin an entire man's life? Like like is that is one." Failure yeah. from an, un- an otherwise perfect career uh, and service to you enough to make me a, a failure for life. That speaks directly to you. I love that you said that the, the expectation because there is a hint of tragedy there. It doesn't make it does not make Strickland a sympathetic character, but it does help you understand like what's the world living in and what is this thing that's driving the patriarchy, which we don't have to get. You know, that's a it's become a very negative buzzword lately. But like it is. Th- uh, he exists in a system that tells him he has to do ex- – he has to have the family, the car, the job, and he always has to get results. And that's the thing. He goes to the bathroom and is like just doing him, yeah. talking to himself like I am a man who delivers. I don't fail. I always succeed like X, Y, Z. And it's it's very pro, rah, rah, kind of macho culture. Yeah. Uh, and if he doesn't get that, he feels like he failed and right. he is being cast out. It's weird these the way these those kind of ideals are kind of entrenched in our culture that – when you think about it, like philosophically, it's like they don't serve anyone. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, what what happens when we don't follow these rules? You know, well, then everyone's equal. And it's, but because well, they, because ultimately, it's because the people at the top are the ones who are the ones who are reaping the benefits. It's true. You know, mm, the, the people who are making the big calls, they're the ones. It always goes back down to class when you think about it. Yeah. Every 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 facet, whether it's racism, sexism, you know, just any kind of discrimination, it's like you know, it's all about who's reaping the benefits at the right. top. And, and even though, yes, Michael uh, Shannon, the Strickland, and his family do live in the most privileged group in the film, and yeah. in that in that time, no, undeniably. There is still expectations put on them about how they're supposed to work or they are failures and they aren't functioning members, healthy functioning members of society if they don't do X, Y, Z that fits in the mold, makes them fit in the mold. Right. Um, So I think that's very – it does – I think Del Toro is trying real hard and I guess it depends on varying degrees of success, trying to say – not maybe make him sympathetic but make you realize that this character represents the average guy at this time and what's wrong with that? And yeah. uh, it's a problem that still exists in society today, by the way. Um, really? <laughs> this, this serves a really important critique of the patriarchy and, and some of that toxic masculinity. Again, mm-hmm. uh, another buzzword. But like uh, toxic masculinity is someone who is hazed into saying, man, if you don't do this, you're not a man. Right. You know, like that's – and if you don't capture this creature that we have decided is not a man, then you're not a man. Right. Then you're just like the creature. Then you're just like the people who – who clean the floors. You're right. no better than them. Right. I think there's a, a really interesting take on race in the film yeah. as well because it's it's not front and center, but you just that's it's in the backdrop, which kind of sets the tone because you also have, again, the counter boy that we saw who chased Richard Jenkins out mm-hmm. also chased away uh, the African-American couple who walked into into the, right. into the, right. the store. It's, he also chased them out. It's blood. It's trickled down into every facet, every every class group of you know society. So it's, it's very fascinating. Like, well, for example, like the first encounter that Octavia Spencer has – with Michael Shannon's character, you know, we remember we were watching and we were like, um, 
Wait, is, he, oh. is he making a subtle race joke? And then and then the second comment he makes to her is very directly, I don't like you because you're black. Yes. You know, and it, I mean, without saying oh. it in so many words. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I didn't include this in the show notes. But we got to talk about this, too, with, with Strickland. And I think, again, Strickland just represents a lot of the, the, the really the, the thing that's being critiqued in the movie, I think, which uh, one of the things being critiqued. But the, the use of religion in this movie. Yeah. We're all made in God's image. That yes. thing is not. Is that thing, that, that oh, amphibian yes. man, does that look like God? I don't think so. I think he looks a lot more like us. Yes. And in this case, looks a lot more like me, actually, than oh, you yes. did. Deeply you. critical of religion throughout. Yeah. I mean, it's used kind of as the governing force for a lot of his decisions. And that was interesting, too. If you think about it, like, we haven't even really talked about the creature, you know, and, no. and the romance, you know, because there's so many inner working themes that are in the story it's not i mean it is about that but it's really about so many things you know so many other things too right um the the things that are kind of operating in the background are really are, are really making those themes stronger but. right well and it makes it well it raises the stakes for the romance too yeah. i think it, it, it kind of like highlights how out of the norm what, what's happening with them it 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 is and how edgy and dangerous it is like, uh, you don't, they, they don't these two characters don't live in a world where the union of their romance is ever going to survive the, the is sustained in this culture, in right. this world, in this, in this context. So did that work? So let's talk about the romance a little bit then. Um, did that stuff work for you? It did. Absolutely. And, and it's because as in all of Guillermo's films, um, he allows us to sympathize with his characters, his marginalized characters before they make complicated decisions. Because on paper, if you had described that Sally Hawkins, you know, eventually it gets intimate with this, with this non-human creature. Um, that would seem to me like we're, we're, we're tearing into that weird, twisted, borderline bestiality type of, you know, um, and, but it works because we care about her and we care about the relationship that she's kind of forged with this creature. We spend enough time with them that it, even when we're going into that scary, uncomfortable place, we're we're totally involved in in the two characters that it's not so weird to us. It makes it seems like a natural progression of what they're of what they've established up to that point. I even like the casualness of it, like after they've been in, intimate. When she's talking like oh, she's yeah. talking to Octavia Spencer at work, just like girl talk. It's just kind of like, does he have a you know? And then she describes you know his, yeah, yeah. his, his appendage, and you're like, okay, so this is just like. Like anything else, like, yeah, but, yeah. But really, it's definitely not. So, so it just, yeah, it's just interesting how he he was able to somewhat normalize this 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 relationship. Relationship, yeah, get the audience to buy it, to that, buy it. You yeah. know, that, that's that that that, and I think that's the thing. That's the thing. It's like mainstream audiences are they going to buy this? Right. It's, it's kind of strange, but I th- I think so. I think he does a great job selling uh, selling that, and I think it's a great subversion to uh, the traditional mon- monster narrative uh, because. The way the movie opens is pretty brilliant because it reads like a once upon a time, just like a fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was a couple who was in love and society was trying to keep them apart and there was a monster trying to stop them. Like, like, and you're, you know, if you're putting this in the context of the 1960s, you're thinking, oh, the swamp thing. Yeah. The creature from the Black Lagoon is a monster keeping, uh, you know, our main characters and and, and Michael Shannon like separated. But no, 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 no. the, The real monster is is kind of the more fascist or totalitarian like society saying no 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 we know what you're who, who you're supposed to be with and it's not that yeah he keeps reminding us all the whole time who is the monster what is the monster mm-hmm. you know and it's relative to where you are you know whether if you're michael shannon then it's the actual creature if you're the main character well there's a scene there's a really great image in the movie too where the amphibian man picks her up mm-hmm. when she's like down right yeah. and in a 
in a normal in a movie from like you'd see in the 1960s, that would be a creature got the girl. And he got the girl. He's, he's trying to kill her. He's trying to take her away to his his lair or something like that. And then Michael Shane is the hero who's trying to save her. Right. Um, but in this story, you know, it's, that's yeah. I love how he he turns that on his head. No, no, no. The monster's actually a very sweet creature that she's in love with. Uh, it's like he's been watching the monster films his whole life and he's always identified with the monster in all of the stories and so here this is his chance to try and like again subvert that expectation right and we're now like you said the monster is who we're rooting for Mm -hmm. and the people are the ones that we want to see well some of the people are the ones we want to see come to their ultimate demise right well because the ultimate monster the, the 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 ultimate evil is not is not the creatures. It is the society that we live in that is doing far more detrimental things to everyone, including the amphibian man, but everyone really. The way that it subjects these people to different tiers of society based on all those all those things about their identity. Right. Including the amphibian man, of course. But also this is a, it's still kind of a fairy – it is still kind of a fairy tale. There's a lot of whimsical stuff that happens here. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting how they how he blends the genres together. I, I agree. Um, I, I think I mentioned this when we watched it. That there's a few films it reminded me of. I mean obviously there's – the Beauty and the Beast element is there. You know what I mean? There's that. You know, where um, you have this uncommon romance. But then also a couple years ago, The Artist, which won the Oscar – there was elements to that has that kind of sensibility that kind of surprisingly for a Guillermo del Toro film, you have him actually calling attention to these to these these genres that he is playing with. Because there's a really, really gorgeous kind of, um, uh, I guess it's a little closer towards the end of the film where we get this kind of trance-like uh, escape dreamlike sequence that's in, in black and white between the two of them where all of a sudden Sally Hawkins, you know, her voice is, is clear and she has a singing voice in there and they're kind of swooning around and doing this, this, this dance number together, her and the creature in that context. I thought that was really interesting for him because normally he doesn't call attention to these things, but it, it felt right for this particular story because again, he's subverting all these different genres in one film. And I thought it was just a really, a really um, interesting kind of artistic, you know, diversion there kind of in the third act. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot to take away from this film. I think it's an important film this year. Just trying to teach some empathy and have us really think a little bit more about people uh, and different groups other than us and trying to think through their humanity and what makes them that way. And uh, I think on all fronts, again, like I said earlier, on all fronts, even the people who might be perpetuating a terrible system yeah, uh, or people that I normally just don't even think about because I don't encounter them on the day-to-day. Yeah, But at the end of the day, I think this is definitely a film that is dedicated to breeding empathy and love and trying to help us uh, all come to terms with our humanity. And that our humanity, what I love about Del Toro is he's not a cynic. It's been a rough year. I don't think anyone's going to deny that. But he's still optimistic and wants to believe that humanity uh, is a good, beautiful thing and that it's going to get better. And I appreciate that optimism. And I love his romanticism that he incorporated in this film because it makes me personally as an individual feel a little bit better and and hopeful uh, about the future. Um, So before we kind of wrap up today's conversation, one thing, uh, one quote that came out in an interview he did after this film premiered at the Toronto Film Festival uh, really stuck with me. That was when I knew I was sold on this movie. I mean, I was sold on it with Del Toro, but I was like, oh no, this is going to be a really special one, Del Toro right. film. Uh, was when he said, I think when we wake up in the morning, we can choose between fear and love every single morning. Every morning. If you choose one that doesn't define... And every morning, if you choose one that doesn't define you until the end, 
the way you you end your story is important. It's important because it's important that we choose love over fear because love is the answer. Silly as it may sound, it is the fucking answer to everything. I you mean, govern your whole life with that. Then everything, even even the differences that we have between all the different culture systems, like every everything that we're operates that's in opposition in our culture. Do we want to operate we, on an individual and on a big picture? Right. Do we want to operate out of fear of right. others, fear of yeah. change, fear of threats, or do we want to operate with a more empathetic approach? Right. That things people if you show compassion in every aspect of your life, then those differences are not going to matter, and you're gonna you're all we're always going to come to a healthy. You're, you're gonna find you're gonna find common ground because we're find all that common humanity because we all have that we all possess that at the end of the day. You know, we created these systems where they're all. You know what I mean? Culturally sanctioned things that we created, you know, male, female, whatever, Republican, Democrat, all these things, you know, at the end of the day, they don't matter. No one dies and says he was a Republican. You know, no one cares. You know, you're going to talk about their memory of them as a person. As a person. And when you sit down and talk to people who are different from you and you actually talk and you actually listen, mm-hmm. they're not that – they're just people that have – they're just people. They might have different experiences than you, but like there's a lot more you have in common than right. you don't have in common. So – when we wake up every day, we have a decision. And I think in a, a time of cynicism, especially if you're a person who exists in a group that is trying to like really bring a lot of help to marginalized and, and voices of marginalized groups of people, it is very difficult and easy to get cynical and jaded very quickly. But I think movies like this show that there is a way forward yeah. and to continue to lead with love and empathy is really how we're going to ultimately, at the end of the day, change the world. So... Or at least save it from self-destruction. Or save it from self-destruction. We can only hope. So there you have it, guys. My thoughts on The Shape of Water. Give us the shape of the universe is what he just gave us. <laughs> so, Laurent, anything else you'd like to add on The Shape of Water today? I just say see it. See it. See it. Embrace it. And and look forward to seeing one of Guillermo del Toro's, I think, again, top, best American films, as you said. And I think one of the top three of all of his films. Thanks so much for listening to this segment of the Cinematic Schematic in this month's uh, edition of the the silver screen soliloquies i do want to remind you that if you've enjoyed this show so much please take a few minutes just to head on over to itunes or stitcher radio google play any of those podcast apps and give us a rating and a review right now we're this is only the third full episode of the cinematic schematic so giving us those ratings is going to give us a huge bump it's going to help us get found by more people saying nice things if you like it please 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 do that that would be a, a huge help to us our show uh, currently, we don't have any ads, no commercials, no sponsors. So the the way you can really help us the most right now at this point is just by giving us a rating and letting and telling your friends about it. Tell yeah. any of your fr- film friends about it. Spread the word. Uh, Laron, uh, where can people find you online if they want to keep up with you until next month's episode? Um, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, at my main um, film fan page is uh, uh, facebook.com slash youpeoplemovie. You can follow me directly on Facebook under my name, Laron Chapman. Twitter at the names Laron. Excellent. And uh, as always, you can find me uh, tweeting up a storm on Twitter at C Masters Talk. That is letter C Masters Talk. All of the Cinematropolis content can also be found on our Twitter and Facebook pages on Twitter and Instagram. That is at the Cinematrop. And on Facebook, it's just facebook.com forward slash the Cinematropolis. Give us a like. Again, spread the word. Tell your friends. Share this post. Do all the awesome stuff. Spread the, the gospel of the cinematic schematic. That is how uh, we will get heard. Uh, so that'll be a huge help to us. Uh, next month, we're going to be taking a look 
at Prestige Films, uh, Prestige Films Past and Present. We're gearing up for the Oscar race, so month of January, we're going to be looking back at some of our favorite Prestige Films. I can't wait to talk with you more about it. But don't go away. Coming up next, Alexandra Bohannon will analyze and talk with us about some of the most iconic movie monster themes in history. Stay tuned. Welcome to Soundtrack, a curated sound analysis and discussion segment on the Cinematic Schematic. This podcast, as well as other great film articles and content, can all be found on the Cinematropolis.com. My name is Alexander Bohannon, and this month's theme on Soundtrack, we're discussing Misunderstood Monsters. But I did say we, and joining me in the kitchen studio is one of my fellow film lovers, as well as the editor and chief of the Cinematropolis.com. Sir, can you introduce yourself? My name's Caleb Masters, and uh, this is a super exciting month. Uh, yeah. We're, we're sitting here. Movie Monsters is a classic icon. And thank God for Gilmore Del Toro making me fall in love with monsters all over again with the shape yeah. of water. It's a good time. Absolutely. Thanks, as always, for joining me this month on our Misunderstood Monsters theme. I would not miss it for the world, Alex. Yeah. So I look forward to recording this segment every single month. Oh, so cute. Okay. Well, I did, you actually did steal my thunder for my next question, because as someone, I always read the articles on the cinematropolis.com, um, and you said that we're picking this theme of Misunderstood Monsters because of the Del Toro film, The Shape of Water. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. That, that is correct. I'm personally really observant on like the time frame I pick from because different time periods for scoring can make like there's different trends in scoring. I mean, we're in this kind of 2010. Well, we're kind of getting out of it now. Uh, this is a total side note, but like for a while, like the 20 teens after Inception happened, everything sounded like Inception. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And now we're getting to, I think we're in almost solidly in a new era. Everything sounds like Stranger Things. Yeah, yeah, Thor yeah. Ragnarok yeah, exactly. soundtrack sounds like Stranger Thor. Things. Yes, correct. Like everything sounds like Slash. It follows Stranger Things that any 80s synth, Guardians of the Galaxy, all of it sounds the same, which I love because I'm a deep fan of that kind of sound. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that's kind of like the newest trend. So anyway, for all of that, I try and pick like different eras of like film sound to pick from. And because of the different types of eras of movie monsters, we have like a lot of different types of monsters we're talking about today. And of course, the scores associated with them. 
So, yeah. So, you know, I I like to think of myself as a pretty pretty savvy film watcher, but sure. I have. Could you keep me? What was that first film we listened yeah, to on the, on the well, intro? I mean, okay, so it might it wasn't cheating because it's it's definitely a thing. Uh, so is it the swamp thing? No, no, uh, close. I'm, th- I'm just throwing so, stuff at the wall. Uh, <laughs> no, you're fine. So this is why I brought in the show with the orchestral suite of the 1922 masterpiece F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu. Oh my god, I should have yeah, had that one. No, Shit. it's Nosferatu. fine. Well, okay, here's the thing. Uh, so just a quick, couple quick notes on Nosferatu before I move into the rest of our show. One reason you probably didn't guess it, Caleb. Yes, this is a silent film. Um, it has an official orchestral score. Uh, the one intended by Hans Erdmann. So this would have been uh, played with these original prints, but it what didn't really fully survive, like some of these, like the fact that, you know, like stuff like that, it disappears over time, like the sheet music and all this stuff. So music historians and and composers kind of have have reconstructed this score of from like all these different notes that ha- are had in these archives and so the kino restoration of nostrofdu ooh the Kino restoration of Nosferatu. A, it's beautiful. It's on Amazon. You can rent it, or you can do this like trial subscription thing, and you can see it for free. It's awesome. Like I, it it doesn't. It takes all that shakiness out, and like a lot of the major, the, whenever the blemishes. I love seeing blemishes on film, but whenever they're the point, they're distracting. Right. It's really hard to kind of like, you want like just the just, right amount of blemish. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean. But it looks like it almost looks like a fake silent movie. It's so so beautiful of a restoration. Um, so anyway, uh, this so this specific soundtrack and this suite that we were, started the show with, these are the the closest to the original real deal score intended for this movie as possible. Since this film was uh, scored with the music, Hans Erdmann was able to use a lot of the typical film uh, score silent film tricks. Um, so he's not only just scoring, but he's like scoring to emulate sound design because you can't like have you know, there's no no sound, so it's this is it, you know. Uh, so you'll have like horses galloping, and he will score the horses galloping with instruments, and he's like matching that to the like the literal things we see on screen, and which I think is really fascinating myself. Uh, lots of Mickey Mousing where it's like someone's going up the stairs and it's like bum bum bum, you know, yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff where it's it's not even like sound design, and then of course um, to help convey the mood and tone of the film he i would say that composers of this era this is like just kind of like a personal observation they're probably a little more heavy-handed on it's like this is what you're supposed to feel because you can't hear the characters emote their words the music is doing a lot of the emoting because you're reading these title cards so um anyway i thought that was i, I thought that would be a good way to enter the show i'm really yeah i'm really glad you brought something in from the silent era because i think a lot of those scores get forgotten because, oh, they're, because they're so old and even though they are really the dry i mean they are the sound of the film sure. i think people kind of forget about them because also, it's kind of a, it's like an era before we have the big john williams yeah, absolutely so um another thing that's really interesting i did a lot of i even though you know it's not in my notes i did a lot of research on kind of like the whys uh of this for there was like this trend in the 70s and 80s where it's like we do not want our silent films to have scores because that takes away from the original intention like film professors and like critics were like let's not have the score original scores with these movies yeah they just like turned on it um but as like we've been doing better in our archival process and like doing these restorations of uh we've kind of we've gone back to wanting the original the the original yeah that's fascinating because it kind of reminds me of like whenever they they started 
coloring black and white films right. and everyone's like no 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 we don't want any more black and white films let's just recolor everything yeah which is in retrospect you're like why was why was yeah. that the trend why did everyone think that was the thing to do you know? right exactly and uh so i thought that was really interesting and of course if you've ever seen a print of nosferatu especially the ones on those really ridiculous like 50 movies on two discs type box sets which is how i first watched nosferatu you're you probably watch a score watch the film with a score that was really bad i did lots of organ none of it matched up with what i was watching and it like you could notice a difference now this uh of course this isn't the original recording of course not that's almost impossible um but it it was rescored based on all of those notes done by the original composers um and it was done by i think it was the Prague philharmonic just like a really you know well i mean received... it doesn't get better yeah. than Prague philharmonic no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're like the real deal this is like the closest we can get to the real deal on that so definitely uh check out that kino print it it will do your heart some good keep looking at our misunderstood monsters especially since we we kind of have like the creature from the black lagoon thing for the shape of water creature yeah. and of course count Olock is uh dracula right so yeah, yeah no that's a good pick and i think this theme in particular i think lends itself really well to to music because i think the way films are scored and the, the sounds associated with the creatures and these films is such a huge deal because it tells you so much about how us as the audience is supposed to feel about the creature in that moment. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, so I think I think this, there's a lot a lot of rich picks here. So I can't wait Man, to see what you've got. You for us are today, like you just killed that segue because that's this next movie. You're just. It, you said all these things and all of that applies to this next movie Yay. like perfectly we're not moving very much further from 1922 just about 30 years okay just so about 30 50s, years 50s 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 yeah 50s, okay. another misunderstood monster one that has a lot of consequences for a very small island nation Yeah, Caleb's pointing across the room because he's pointing to the the kaiju monster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you got it, Caleb. Uh, I'd be doing a disservice to our listeners if I did not include the main title, track one from the 1954 kaiju film Godzilla, or Godzilla for us Americans, uh, directed by Ishiro Honda and composed by Akira 
Ifu Kube. Uh, so uh, at release, uh, just for some methodology, uh, Godzilla was quite the misunderstood monster. Um, at release of the film in Japan, uh, the Japanese thought that this tragedy, that the tragedy of the atomic bomb, of course, the metaphor of Godzilla, was being used against them for capitalistic gain. So they thought that someone was purposely taking advantage of the situation, like Toho was taking advantage of the situation of the H-bomb uh, of the atomic bomb to uh, like drum up sales for the movie. Um, so it was only until American critics reflected on the film as a meditation on the tragedy of nuclear war that the Japanese started to like shift their perspective. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, so, so it really took the American critics talking about it being like, oh, we done goofed kind of, kind of thing. So, so, Jap- so oh, okay. To so, shift the perspectives of the Japanese critics. Okay. The so, because the Japanese critics saw this as cashing in and the they American were critics in, were like, yes. oh, no. Oh, this is no, like this clearly is- the director's like having. You, reflecting on the, the consequences of the bomb. Exactly. That's fantastic. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It is fascinating, though. Yeah, sure. yeah. And um, another thing, uh, another reason for a misunderstood monster status, um, Godzilla in present popular culture, I think, is also a misunderstood monster. Um, besides the most recent Toho Godzilla, uh, Shin Godzilla from 2016, most of the subsequent, if not all of the subsequent Godzilla movies are less a meditation on nuclear war or a country responding to natural disaster like, uh, like uh, Shin Godzilla. It's mostly just about monster fights for uh, like yeah. basically every single one after 1954. So uh, <laughs> it's basically wrong. the Super Nintendo game Rampage. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. So it's basically just that. So like that's one thing that I never understood until I sat down to watch 1954's Godzilla and be like, oh, oh. <laughs> you well, know? It's, 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 yeah, it's really interesting because because he's been so associated for so, especially in our lifetime, has been so associated with like Power Rangers-esque monster exactly. fights. Exactly. We kind of forget. And, and I would and actually stuff. say most people had probably forgotten that Godzilla is actually a really important icon for Japan history, especially history and film. And like, as you said, serving as a, as a reflection on the dropping of the bomb, like that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, and I th- one other thing, I, I, mean, I don't hope I don't steal your thunder, but one, of the, one of the thing that I think is interesting to observe about all the films that are about the fights is Godzilla. And the first one, Godzilla is wreaking havoc and that all the other films, Godzilla is helping fighting the, right. bo- you know, the, the fighting, the Mothra or Mechagodzilla Mothra, Godzilla or, or whatever the fight is. Oh yeah. yeah I G- Gamora. I think Gamora is another one. Uh, yeah. there's one that's like an, a Hydra with like a bajillion heads. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, I think that might be Gamora. I don't know. I need to go back and like, describe my uh, Godzilla. I need to learn uh, learn more Godzilla. There's a there's a lot names. of Godzilla out there, um, and that's another reason. So I just again, um, a lot of people just see oh they see Mecha Godzilla, they see Mothra, they see Godzilla versus King Kong versus blah, and then that's all they think of. They think Godzilla and they see Reptar. That's kind of like where where that from the of, Rats, yeah. right yeah, yeah 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 exactly um so here's some more info i found s- interesting about the main godzilla theme from uh this is taken from the godzilla wiki uh so originally this specific theme was intended to be associated with the japanese self-defense force as seen in the film uh, but then it became the official theme for the monster character godzilla and then of course the entire franchise so then uh toho execs then knew the track as just basically the main godzilla theme and then of course this theme was then brought back in subsequent sequels and then altered a whole bunch to fit in with the tone of the film the one video i'm using for uh cutting this clip 
It has all has all the mashups of this specific theme across the franchise. I'll drop it in the show notes. It's really great, especially to hear in the middle. I even uh, I asked people around. I'm like, do you recognize this specific Godzilla theme? People just keep calling it Godzilla Forever. I think it might have been associated with an action figure line. Whatever. It's like synth 80s, like hard rock. It's amazing. So Fantastic. it definitely kind of fits in line with that, like Thor Ragnarok. Uh, back to Akira Ifu. Kobe, uh, Ifu. Ifu Kobe. Yeah, I'll just. Yeah, yeah. So, back to Akira Ifu Kobe. He decided to become a composer at the age of fourteen after hearing a radio performance of Igor Stravinsky's *The Rite of Spring*. Um, And then he, uh, his first film score was 1947. So we finally got a guy that just didn't knock it out of the park on his first film score. But at fourteen, he decided he He wanted wanted to be be a composer. composer. So (laughs) I mean, he's not he's not he's not like a a miracle child out the door. But I mean, second fourteen is a pretty big deal well and so this is another thing uh you were talking earlier it's like you still again you keep stealing my notes buddy uh you were talking about how we uh, were talking about how composers engineer the sounds that we associate with these monsters and we associate with them for you know the rest of of their time and he, um ifukube did this by designing godzilla's roar and his footstep sound effect. And because those are both done by orchestration. Really? Not by any huh. kind of thing like that. So we're going to actually listen to both of those things real quick. Yeah, Caleb. So basically what if- Ifu Kube did, he took a bow from like the a resin covered glove and he rubbed it along the strings of a double bass to make that scary sounding that that's crazy yeah and then its footsteps he created by striking an amplifier box which i'm not entirely sure what an amplifier box is if it's i think it's just a musical thing it's a a box that amplifies things. Uh, it's a box that amplifies Uh, things oh it's just an amp he did it by striking an amp uh so he just hit it and like whenever uh i mean you heard the footsteps and it's just kind of interesting to think you can get that from just uh, i mean it's all just the stuff that was available to right, him right well i like um, how that he he was the one who made these sound effects and he's yeah, a composer, which is not traditionally the same thing as the sound guy absolutely yeah and that's the thing um both of these sound effects remind me of what we just talked about with Nosferatu. There's only 30 years difference between these two films. So composers are like, he's, he's not as responsible for sound design, but he was still given a big piece of the sound design to make for this entire movie, um, which was this, uh, the iconic roar, which is used throughout the series. I mean, it gets tweaked and all that, but back to 2016 Shin Godzilla, that roar was back in full effect just the way it originally sounded. And we have this gorgeous CGI, you know, masterpiece of a Godzilla, but we have this classic roar, but it still fits. It looks like it looks like it was designed for that creature. It's really phenomenal. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, and that's the thing. It's such an iconic sound effect. Absolutely. The Godzilla roar. So to think that he just kind of, I'm sure the first time he did it, just kind of threw it together and experimented with stuff and it's some weird mixing stuff that it has gone and become an iconic thing that still as you said came back today I think just kind of 
further cements Godzilla as a true icon that I do think in the States especially is underappreciated. But I mean, especially after seeing Shin Godzilla uh, last year, it really kind of reminded me how important this icon is. Absolutely. So I, I, I'm lucky enough to live with a Godzilla expert in my, my house. His name is Zachary Burns. He's one of the founders of the Cinematropolis and, of course, Planet Thunder Productions, his film production company. Um, but I, asked, I just asked him, I was like, okay, as someone that has seen this, not just Godzilla, but all the Godzilla movies multiple times. And what do you want to say about the Godzilla soundtrack, soundtrack and scores? Because uh, especially in this first one, again, going back to like how you feel like they're underappreciated stateside. And I agree with that. I mean, we had 2014's Godzilla and it's really trying to make something happen there. I mean, people liked it, I guess. People liked it, I guess. That's kind of the gist I got about it too. Um, but anyway, he told me to say this. He said, the actual tracks for Godzilla's actual attacks are slower than you might expect, but that pairs well with how big and slow Godzilla actually is because he's not creating such huge, huge swaths of damage. He's just big, and that's creating a lot of damage. Uh, and the score in these moments gives the whole film a sense of dread. We feel like death is coming for you, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. And when those attacks, when those tracks play which is exactly what an attack from Godzilla or the dropping of a nuclear bomb would be like. Mm, so you yeah. just know the impending dread it's coming and, but you can't do anything, anything about, it. about it. Yeah. Right. Wow. That's a great point. Yeah. And then he said, then the tracks were when their humans are rallying their resources to fight back. Godzilla are very militaristic and there's lots of hurried energy to them. Hurried anxiety and almost slight hint of desperation as the music builds. And then the music stops almost immediately, just like Godzilla stops them in their tracks. And then he, he said that was in specific reference to there's a track on the the score called The Pursuit of Godzilla. So um, and then he also advised me I, and I said, where where should we end Godzilla? You know, uh, oh, oh, mighty Godzilla scholar in my house. And he suggested we say goodbye to Godzilla uh, with Akira Ifukube's 1954 uh, soundtrack track entitled Ending, which is track number 22 from the Godzilla soundtrack.
I'm shedding tears, Alex. Dropping down my face. Why? Godzilla was just a freak of nature. That Was he just was, misunderstood? He was misunderstood, and we killed the freaking Godzilla. Yeah. Why did we do that? Um. Well, because they didn't want another Godzilla, and that's the thing. That's the thing. The melancholy of this piece when we're mourning uh, Dr. Sarazawa's death as well as... Um, it's not just contemplating the fact that continued nuclear tests could produce more Godzillas in the future, which they do in this universe. Like in literal storyline, it's five months and there's another Godzilla yeah, yeah. for the sequel. No, totally. Cause, cause they totally, I mean, firstly, they're trying to clean up after their own mess. One, two, they don't learn their lesson and continue to do the same thing anyway. Right. So this song is not jubilant that Godzilla is dead, but it's still afraid for the future that could unfold more monsters that could just obliterate them. And that goes back to the whole idea of nuclear war. It's never over. Right. It's like we dropped one bomb, but then who who knows what we could experience next. Right, right. Yeah. So now we're to move substantially more into the future with our next misunderstood monster. Uh, I would say the modern misunderstood monster, in my opinion, is none other than the non-humanoid space alien that has difficulty communicating with humans. Uh, a xenomorph? No, but that would have been a good pick. No, here we go. Kicking <laughs> off the modern misunderstood monster with Rise, track number 19 from Johan Johansson's 2016 Arrival soundtrack. Give me your thoughts on that specific track. I love Arrival. Yep. I hadn't even considered that movie as part of fitting under this month's theme at it's, all. It's, but it actually is. Aliens the part, are very misunderstood. It, 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 it's actually the perfect film. That's like the whole point of the movie is that the, oh my God, the aliens are invading, but really they're here to like help, help us help, save, our, help us save, save ourselves. <laughs> so talk about misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, that's a great pick. And I, what I love about that is it's, it's a very, that whole film, but the score is a key piece of this is making this very melancholy, reflective atmosphere you're in where you're always like kind of on edge but you're 
there's like this sense of weird mystery and allure to yeah. it uh, that when you listen to it, it's like, I don't know what this is. It's like, it's got that low rumble, but then you get those kind of, not quite voices that kind of chime in there. Yeah, towards the exactly. End. It, it, and it's just, so when, I, the, when I'm visualizing this in my head, I'm thinking I'm walking down, uh, uh, I'm walking in the woods, the very foggy woods in the evening time. And I'm like, I don't know what's around the, right, right around the next corner. I'm not. It might not be bad. It's a little scary, but it might not be bad. It's kind of cool because also not scary woods. Like the woods is also very beautiful at nighttime. You see that moonlight, the stars, and the moonlight shining in. I don't know why I'm painting this picture for you all right now, but that's like I'm trying to think that that's the mood. I feel like this piece really sets off. Yeah, I so I really convey. This yeah, is the mood, this this really conveys no, for me what I'm thinking. I no, I I think that was an, a beautiful description of that, Caleb. I closed my eyes and I was I was in those woods and I got that exact. I understand that exact feeling you're going for because it's it's not sad but it's not happy mm-hmm. it's not it's not fearful but it's not confident mm-hmm. so it's like in this weird it's in the weird twilight it's in like a twilight area yeah. of life where it's yeah. like you're in this absence of of things you're in the absence of these feelings even though you feel like each of them could lend themselves to that present moment. Right. It, it just, I don't know. It gets me thinking about all these deep philosophical, metaphysical type uh, thoughts. Gosh, you know, and this is why Arrival is a masterpiece. Absolutely. And why this score is the perfect score for Absolutely. this film. Absolutely. And well, for a film that's so centered on communication, I love how this specific song uses these meaningless human sounds right. to work with the idea of communication being difficult between humans already, let alone different species of sentient beings. I just love how they're, I mean, of course they're singing and they're making these noises, but it's like no one, we can't even understand them you know uh, i always go back to this youtube video that someone made years ago it's like a short film and it's like what english sounds like to other people that don't speak english and it's basically these two individuals they're having like dinner and they're having like a small conflict and but they're saying words that sound like a like a english cadence and they have like our hard syllable patterns and like they have all the sounds but they're just meaningless gibberish i have to see this video it's so interesting it reminds me of this song because it's like all of these sounds sound like words but they're not words there's Mm -hmm. no meaning to them i mean of course there's the whole you know linguistic idea of like you know the meaning of words there's no intrinsic meaning of words and blah 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 the whole world could use a little bit of a rival. I yeah, mean, if we all, like if we all, if we all just the whole world collectively watched Arrival at the same time, I think we all could get on the same page about, oh shit, what if we just like tried to communicate? Like the world's hard, you know, but like if we just tried to communicate things, yeah, uh, absolutely, so, you know, instead of all shouting, especially right now, and and uh, communication is hard, it's difficult. And I think this movie does a really great job. But anyway, we're getting away from the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack, though, really does communicate sure. all of those. I love that you talked about how it's the human voices that sound like they're saying they're words, saying they're words that no meaning. I love that because that's exactly what the film is getting at. It, and it yeah. just creates that whole this whole message this film is sending is, is, is flawless. Yeah. And after um, seeing so I saw Arrival and then for the first time I saw that. 30th anniversary Close Encounters. Oh uh, yeah, great. that's a great, big, which, great pairing. Oh, it's a fantastic pairing because I didn't realize that Denny, because we know that Denny Villeneuve loves Close Encounters, but I didn't realize that Arrival was him making his own Close Encounters in a way. Yeah, which and, and not to say that it it doesn't. I mean, it you know the idea of like aliens coming and 
humans not knowing how to deal basically um but it but him doing it in his own way um in about modern issues just like how spielberg at time of close encounters was doing it about this is a very uh was it like it was either late seventies, early eighties, right? Or uh, was yeah, it I think it might have even been. It might have even been nineteen eighty. It was. Right, it was after okay. Star. Right after Star Wars. Oh, okay, so you know we have that movie that is like talking. It's using the lens of of quote a monster slash an alien slash another being to talk about issues of modern society which which i would posit that most great science fiction does that successfully and that's again what rival is doing here and i think that is also lifted up higher because of the score um that specific track um, rise is the one where she's being beamed up in a way uh, to the ship um after it's a brilliant way to do beamed up oh man i just want to gush on this movie so much okay yeah this movie is fantastic well i love how you paint though that you you i mean they are they're not monsters but i like how you kind of posit that and and kind of break it down again because monsters being like these evil terrifying things but most sure we started with nosferatu which is like you know like a prototypical archetypal type of um, quote monster Mm -hmm. um and then like most I, i would probably say that in like in films that have nuance most quote monsters are kind of misunderstood they, they are because they they have they have reasons for doing what they're doing or maybe they don't understand why that maybe they're just angry like there's always way more to the story sure and i think all the films you picked they are really highlighting that really well because if you really want to break it down none of them are just monsters there's actually better descriptors for what they are exactly and so i like how you say these are these are aliens uh that actually have no malicious intent but the human re- reaction is, "Ooh, these are monsters. We've got to stop them." Yeah, especially we don't know what they're going to do, so we have to stop them. We're so conditioned that we're so conditioned that aliens just want to take over the planet, and that's one thing that is so interesting to me uh, that science science fiction slash humans have this idea we're so egocentric, and we think that aliens want our shit no we who wants this planet like we need it to survive we need the water and air and all that great stuff that we have here um until we burn it all away or melt it away with global warming but like sorry uh but anyway so we need all this stuff but i don't feel like any why does everyone presume some malicious intent? I mean, it comes from this very egocentric. It's like, oh, because well, I value this thing, everyone else wants to come and get this thing and take it away from me. And which right. is what happens well, in it's Arrival. The, it's, 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 it's exactly what happens. Well, and that's that's the human nature. It's uh, it, it's fear. It's because humans fear what they don't understand and they can't control. Those exactly. are two. Those are two key things. Well, we will need to move on to our last track of this segment of soundtrack of misunderstood monsters. Well, we're going to move on to our last track of this segment of soundtrack for misunderstood monsters in december so here is on nature of daylight from 2016's arrival directed by nini villeneuve
Caleb, any last thoughts? I mean, this is the big cry scene. Uh, yeah. You know, this is a, I don't, I don't want to spoil the movie. I don't want to spoil the film, but like this is definitely where uh, there's a, 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 there's a twist of some sort and there's a lot of payoff. And I, what I like about this though, it is very sad, but it's very bittersweet because like anytime you bring in the violin, like there's that kind of the, the way the violin comes in is it makes it feel like, yeah, it's happier than like the, the I don't know. It's, it's just a beautiful piece, right. and I think it conveys. It does start. It starts with sadness, but then the the, the more instruments that come in later, kind of makes it not happy, but feel more complete. Yeah, uh, and bittersweet. Yeah, that's yeah. the best way to best way to put it. Right. So interestingly enough, this song was written by Max Richter for in two thousand four. That uh, so Max, Max Richter. Richter did this song for his album Blue Notebook. Um, this song, so this song is in the official Arrival soundtrack. It's just not composed by Johan Johansson. Right. Um, this song is featured at the beginning and end, um, but this specific song has been used in a bunch of movies, and not just this one. Oh, interesting. So Arrival, Shutter Island, Stranger Than Fiction, Disconnect, and Face of the Angel, and The Innocence are all movies this song has been used in. Wow. I can't really remember all of those instances. I've only seen one of those other movies. Yeah, Stranger I Than Fiction. Stranger Than Fiction. Yeah. I haven't seen Shutter Island. Uh, but yeah, so... I felt tonally this song reminded me a lot of the Godzilla soundtrack. I knew that this moment in the film were more focused on Amy Adams' character. And at the beginning and end, do the time stuff that happens. There's, there's time things. Time things. Time I'll things. leave it there. Yeah. Um, so I just thought that it, it's just, it goes back to how a piece of music can make you feel it can make you feel the weight of the world, but then it could also pinpoint down into the heart of literally one character. And that's what happens in the score. We think of the fate of the entire human race and the entire world and the fact that aliens exist. And now we have to deal with that whole philosophical crises, but then we have to deal with the, we explore the nuances and heart and mind and emotions of this one, one woman who communicates with these beings. And I think that that is done so brilliantly through the use of this specific song because, I mean, it's such a powerful piece it's, and, and it has it all. 2018 going to be bitter, guys. <laughs> Basically. I, promise. I mean, that's I mean that's our show for the month, folks. Um, no, these are all great pieces, Alex. Yeah. I think this, I, okay, again, we, I think we, I've said it a couple times in this episode, but monsters are complex creatures and sure. whenever you are doing scores that really are, 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 are communicating the, what those monsters mean and are supposed to make us feel like, Ultimately, I think most monsters are tragic, and that's why I think this month is beautiful because there's a lot of times you have these these monsters that come out, and you what, just as you figure out that there's more to them than what we've given them credit for, well, we've killed them, or we've stopped them, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and uh, I hope that all of you, um, I know everyone's kind of wrestling with their own private monsters all the time, and um, hopefully you can get some peace from them going into year 2018. As discussed before, the films we did this month were 1922's Nosferatu, 1954's Godzilla, and of course 2016's Arrival. Individual links and any of the various and sundry information will be in the show notes as well as on the cinematropolis.com. Um, next month's theme of January will be prestige films. Bam! 
We're in Oscar season, baby. It's going to be like Oscar, 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 Oscar. It's Oscar buzz. It's going to be Oscar gowns. It's going to be Oscar gold statuettes. Oscar predictions. Oscar prediction. Oscar bingo. Oscar drinking games. Oscar whatever. Oscar, Oscar fan bait. theories. Oscar fan theories. Yeah. Oscar, Oscar, Oscar fan fiction. <laughs> fan fiction. <laughs> I'm going to write this dream Oscar show with the awards we have this year. Oh and I'll tell you, we've got so much potential this so, year. That'd be so fun. As always, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, you can find this show and much, 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 much more on thecinematropolis.com. You can find me at Alex V. Brohannon at most of the social media. Um, you could probably figure it out. Uh, what about you, Mr. Editor-in-Chief of The Cinematropolis? You can always find me on Twitter uh, at CMastersTalk. That's letter C, Masters Talk, uh, Or on uh, Instagram or Letterbox at CMasters91. Well, fantastic. So we'll be soundtracking again with you all next year. And the show isn't over yet. When we come back, I'll be talking about one of Guillermo del Toro's most beloved films, Pan's Labyrinth, with a panel of film experts after one of our Cinematropolis special screenings at Tower Theater in Oklahoma City. Welcome to the after show for the Pan's Labyrinth screening here at Tower Theater. Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief and film critic for thecinematropolis.com, Caleb Masters, uh, and I'm here with a panel of special guests to talk with us more about the film we all just watched here at Tower, Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, we're joined by a really all-star panel, including uh, Rogelio Almeida Jr., who's a filmmaker here in Oklahoma City. We have Christopher Schultz, who is a dark fiction and uh, fantasy author and also a member of the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle, and Nathan Poppy, the uh, Oklahoman culture writer and also a member of the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle here joining us tonight. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so, you. guys, what about that movie? I've never seen it on the big screen before. Had anyone else? Is this the first viewing for anyone in the audience? Oh, awesome. Oh, wow. Like six or seven or several of you guys. Yeah. Nice. Your first one? Oh, wow. Uh, so this is a really special film for, uh, for, for me personally. This is like Del Toro, like the, the pinnacle uh, of, of his career, because after this he went in to do Crimson Peak, and he did Pacific Rim, a lot of more blockbusters, which are also still wonderful, but I feel like this is where we get to see him at his most personal. So uh, I'm going to throw you guys a curveball to start off with, but uh, just for fun, uh, this movie kind of ends on a really ambiguous note. So uh, does the movie end with the whimsical happily ever after fairy tale? ending or do you read it as more of a sort of dark bleak sad ending who wants to tackle that one first well i was just thinking about that actually because it's sort of a bittersweet ending on the one hand she has accomplished her mission the thing that she's been you know trying to do to unlock this kingdom and bring this world back into existence effectively but she kind of had to die to 
do that. In, she in she didn't die a little. She died hard. Oh yeah, <laughs> no joke. Uh, Del Toro didn't didn't really shy away from like brutal violence in this movie, did he? No, not at all. It, it reminds me a lot of uh, The Devil's Backbone, um, which is equally as gruesome. But I think what we're really looking at is this sort of idea with with the fairy tale. You know, there were always cautionary tales. Um, and with this, what we're seeing is it's less of like what what the danger is in the wilderness, but it's it's human. And that's very much true of Devil's Backbone. And even later on when, in like Hellboy 2, for instance, people are the biggest monsters in this film. You know, we have these amazing creatures and some of them are dangerous, but you know, the, the, the people turning against Hellboy and his crew because they're freaks. And I think, again, yeah, it's, it's a bittersweet ending, but I think that that point certainly gets nailed home. Uh, I remember seeing this, what, we, we said 11 years ago when this first came out. I think my brain wanted it to be a lot happier because I think I suppressed a lot of the battle scenes and a lot of the gruesome stuff. But yeah, it doesn't pull any punches, uh, especially at the end there. And you brought this up too. Um, Guillermo likes to um, start at the end and... Uh, he really rubs it in your face that she is totally gonna die. Yeah, yeah. Sets, sets a really ominous tone right from the get-go and brings it back around and said, Dad, no, I'm not joking, this is pretty ominous and dark. Yeah, at the beginning he starts off with a huge spoiler, so if, <laughs> you know, he tells you how the movie's gonna end. Very poetic ending. What a jerk. Spoil his own movie for the audience? That's crazy. So Del Toro was often called this his own telling of a fairy tale. And what do you think are some of the traits of the fairy tale genre that are present here? And what do you think Pan's Labyrinth does to both play to that and also sort of subvert it to some degree? You've got a, a hero character that kind of leads away. Um, you've got a... Uh, it's not, not quite like a Disney animal best friend uh, raccoon or Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> She's, got <Olaf>. a... <laughs> She's got a fawn. Um, but yeah, reminded me a lot of like Alice in Wonderland where she goes uh, into this very mysterious world where yeah, you, don't, you don't know if the challenge is going to be feeding a frog or uh, fighting the most disgusting movie monster and <laughs> I've ever seen that pale man freaks me out. I mean, I, I, I would be sad if I was a childhood saw the pale man at a young age because that would scar me for life infinitely, just uh, nightmares forever. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I'd say one of the things that uh, it, it, it does to subvert the fairy tale. Um, and a lot of fairy tales, especially the ones that I grew up with, and I think a lot of us grew up with, a lot of Disney retellings were very, very popular. And what those have to do, they're very beautiful a lot of times. And there's, there's kind of this idea of perfection in a fairy tale ending. And Guillermo all, all but just smashes the, <laughs> the light out over that. And you see something a lot darker and a lot weirder. And um, it's, it's really interesting to see a, uh, a fairy tale with uh, s such an interesting tone that, that really isn't worried about, man, it's going to throw her, their, your princess into absolute terror. So I think that's what's uh, exceptional and really interesting about this. 
Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that there's a subversion of the the sort of Disney version of the fairy tale. Um, but in a lot of ways, he's really going back to the origin of the fairy tale, which were very gruesome um, and did not shy away from from violence. Um, and a lot of times, they didn't really have a happy ending. Um, a lot of times, those the the what we see in like the Disney version, or even going back to the um, uh, the, the author's name, I forget now, uh, the French author who sort of invented the fairy tale as we know them in the Disney-fied version. Uh, I'll remember it at 3 a.m. tonight. But uh, <laughs> but that's where a lot of, of that notion came from, like, happily ever after. Um, but in some of the older versions of the tales, they go, the, the story doesn't end there. It goes further, and we see more repercussions for what happened. Um, and I think that's definitely what Del Toro is doing uh, with this film and, and with everything else that he does. Uh, we see it time and again where um, people aren't necessarily making out okay at the end of this. Um, and, uh, and I think in a lot of ways, even though he's such a modern storyteller, um, he really has that older sense to the storytelling that approach yeah yeah he absolutely has a way to show us a beautiful scene beautiful crafted it's like almost like a painting and the next scene is brutal uh, dark and surreal so in, in a way it is it's it's, it's it's telling of of how you know he wants to tell this story and and the um the magical realism that's behind um uh, his own way of his own fairy tale dark poetic um I think I like how you talk about it as a painting because even in that scene with the pale man, we get to see all those paintings on the wall before we actually experience the the, the sheer terror of that monster. <laughs> and it's it's funny we mentioned the dark and the light version. Um, that table reminds me of the dinner scene earlier in the movie where they're all sitting at a very similar table, which is a um, a lot. Uh, not still not super happy because the mom basically gets berated, but um, you're, you're seeing kind of like a mirror world version of that, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really brilliant thing he does too. Is he everything about his fairy tale world is somewhat grounded in reality? She goes under a tree stump and experiences a giant frog. But these are all normal things. Or the dinner table. Hey, uh, earlier in the week, or she saw had a big feast, or what to her seemed like a big feast, and later she encounters a monster who is very reflective in a lot of ways of the, the, the general, who is, uh, it's, it's kind of a dark reflection and a heightened version of what she had experienced throughout the film, um, which uh, leads me to believe, uh, being the really dark, sad person, that the, ultimately, like, the, the, the film, for, for our main character, she, Ophelia, she is coping in a lot of ways with the really sad times and experiences she's living through with her fairy tales and her fantasies. Now, I don't think it's clear. That's what I love about Del Toro. He doesn't, he doesn't really, he leaves it just right in the middle because there's also some stuff like, how did she get out of that room at the end of the movie? And how did she teleport here and there? And, uh, but I, I think ultimately, like, you know, looking at how the things we see in the fantasies reflect different facets of her own life really signals that this is uh, how a girl is coping with uh, the terrors, uh, you know, in the World War II era in Spain. Uh, so that'll, that'll take us right to our next question. The, the film is set in 1944. 
five years after the Spanish Civil War. And so why do you think this setting is so necessary for the story? And, or maybe why do you think it's a significant period of Spanish history? Uh, it's funny that you, you mentioned that um, the previous film, Devil's Backbone, is actually set in the uh, Spanish Civil War when it starts. So it's um, sort of a, and he's mentioned it several times, that's, that Devil's Backbone, um, Pan's Labyrinth, and it kind of belongs to that this uh, untold trilogy of uh, fairy tales that he's um, uh, started back with Devil's Backbone. And so five years later was almost like the perfect setting for him to establish this, the darkness that he needed to develop this, this uh, dark fairy tale. Actually, I, I wanted to bring up a quote that I found from Guillermo uh, earlier today. Um, about why that point in time was so important to him. When he talked about the Spanish Civil War, he said, uh, it's never completely healed in Spain. It's a ghost. Anything pending is a ghost. And when that war ended in 1939, it was highly divisive. Half a million people died, half a million people left Spain. Um, and it kind of gets lost because shortly after World War II um, uh, involves the world. <laughs> and it, it, it kind of, um, uh, what's a good word? It, it, it's kind of leaves that in the shadows. Yeah, it's a it's a war that doesn't get talked about very often at all because it's lost in the shadow of World War II, you know, the the world the war to end all wars part 2 sort of thing and uh, yeah, no, I, it's it's really interesting whenever I, I remember when I encountered this film for the first time and I watched it, I said, "Oh wait, there was a Spanish Civil War about that time period. How did that go?" So I mean, films like this really shed a light on that history that hasn't really been talked about, especially in in cinema on the big screen because everyone's so focused on World War II. I mean, I'm even a lot in uh, you know classes in high school and college. There's no one talking, and very few people talking about the Spanish uh, Civil War that occurred there. Well, and I think it's it's really interesting too because you know you have this war which ended in, in '39. This is set in 1944, and it's it's like, well, is the war over? You know, we're watching this horrific, these horrific acts, this horrific violence. Um, and these people who have supposedly won are just almost outnumbered, and then by the end of the film, they are. Um, so it, I think it really kind of speaks volumes about this idea that, you know, is war ever really over? And it's, and, and just as you said from the quote, it's a ghost that lingers, and it's just something that is always hovering over them. They're never going to get away from it in a lot of ways. So, kind of dovetailing off of that, outside of obviously being in Spanish, what do you think this makes a this Pan's Labyrinth a uniquely Spanish language film? I'll go first. <laughs> I think um, for me, especially uh, being Mexican, I think this this film uh, speaks volumes for me. Especially 2006 was a great year for for Spanish uh, filmmakers or Mexican filmmakers in the case of uh, Alfonso Cuarón uh, coming up with Children of Men and Babel, Alejandro González Iñárritu, and, and also Del Toro with Hans Labrin, which um, I believe they almost changed the game um, uh, at that time. And so for this to be in Spanish, um, I just think it goes back to uh, Del Toro's uh, uh, just drive of, uh, the studios wanted him to make this film in English, uh, Hollywood Studios, and he refused to do that. He wanted to tell this story in Spanish the way they should have been told. 
So I think that just speaks volumes for uh, for this film. Well, yeah, that he didn't he didn't cave on his personal vision there. And I mean, it, 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 I, I don't know. Does it mean a lot more to you this being in Spanish rather than having a studio come in and have it all in English, even though that wouldn't really make any sense given the time period? Yes, absolutely. And it's just it's just beautiful to see a period film, not just a Spanish, but a period film in Spanish that uh, uh, people could uh, actually. Uh, relate in so many levels, you know, just by being uh, in a Spanish language film. Well, and, and the thing I was thinking about was the uh, the book um, when she's touching her hand to it, and you see the language, the story unfolding on these pages, and it's in Spanish. And um, that that moment to me, more than anything, I don't know why, but just the the way that the language is structured and how different it looks and beautiful it looks on the page. Um, just as you were saying, there's so much history and culture and everything just woven into this entire film. And for me, I don't know why that particular image always stuck out. And, and regardless of the language it is, the, the, the story is so powerful and Guillermo is uh, such a visual director and uh, so much of that comes across and a lot of just the, the sounds, the noises, the, 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 the crash of the hooves from the, the fawn to the, the bones and, and how the pale man's moving. Um, it, it communicates uh, on a lot of levels, um, but I, I think you're right, it is, it is special and it's um, uh, when I think of uh, my favorite uh, Spanish language films, this definitely tops it. And going back to the actual the languages itself, um, it's interesting that uh, most of the characters speak at, at the language of that period of 1944, but the Fawn has sort of a, this lost language. Like he speaks like some phrases that you only hear like on like on medieval times. So it's like even older Spanish. And yeah. some of those words, you, I mean, you, you do not hear them anymore. They're like, just, just sound so beautiful. That's actually really cool. I, I, I didn't realize that kind of there's, there's a little bit of nuance that he has a deep respect, that Del Toro has a deep respect for, you know, uh, the Spanish language as well. That's, that's a really nice touch. Uh, one of the thing I wanted to, to mention too, we're going to segue into something that's a little more recent from Del Toro, but one thing I wanted to ask before we get there is, what do you guys think about fairy tales set in a sort of, I mean, this is right in the, the, the height of the, the beginning of the industrial era. Do you think there's something about fairy tales in general that's important that they're set, uh, you know, before we get into this really technological revolution that we see uh, in World War II following right into the Cold War, and which leads us right into the, you know, the, the rapid advance in technology we've seen today. It just seems a lot harder to tell a classic fairy tale today. So do you think there's something about that time period that lends itself to the fairy tale genre in general? Um, well, I think even though the, um, the period which, you know, even though it's not that long ago, it, it, it still can look very much antiquity, and, uh, excuse me, antiquity, I can't say that word. Super old. Super old. <laughs> yeah, super old. Yeah. <laughs> Antiquated. And there you go. Thank you. There you go. Um, but, uh, but, you know, at the end of the film, there's this, there's the flower blooming, and it's this idea that if you know where to look, it's there. And, I, and 
you know, the, the labyrinth and everything is so much older than the period that even she's in. And, and just like you were saying, this, this creature, this fawn is speaking a language that's older in a lot of ways. And I think there is this notion that it's never going to go away. Um, so kind of back to the point about, you know, how war is a ghost, um, and how that's never going to go away. This beauty's never going to go away either. Um, and so I think, even going into, uh, you know, and we're, we're going to get to the shape of water eventually, but uh, we're dealing with even more modern settings with that film. But it's the same principle. Um, these, this magic, you know, this, this ability to believe in magic, it's never going to go away. And um, I, I'd say it... it very interesting to to see a time period where um, to communicate communicating is really hard. You can't just pick up a cell phone and call somebody and say, "Hey, mom, I'm okay. I'm I just, I just uh, fed this frog three rocks. This is crazy, and I took a selfie with it." But I'll be back in five minutes. It's it's uh, it's special, uh, and it 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 creates a lot of the spookiness in in this movie because. Um, you're, uh, it makes her feel a lot more alone. Um, it makes her situation seem a lot more desperate and, and disconnected. And, you know, when the uh, Mercedes is, is picking up the snail mail out of the ground, I was just like, God, it'd been so much easier to just email everybody <laughs> in the resistance. Um, <laughs> but... Um, no, I, the the time period and in, in this story and in like a story like the witch um, when it when it the the, the, the witch the witch the double witch um, <laughs> it uh, it definitely adds to the to the spookiness and effectiveness of of, of the mood and uh, of the story. Well, and how many parallels that you can draw? Like you could, speaking of the witch, you know, uh, it's said in this almost alien, you know, uh, landscape, and they're speaking this archaic language, and yet there's so much you can see, you know, in our own times reflected there. And I think the same is is very much true of uh, Pan's Labyrinth as well, that, you know, and again, war never ends, war never dies. I mean, how many have we had? How many are still going? Um, and... So very much establishing that parable between what's happened before and what's going to happen again. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. It, it speaks to a, you know, a theme that Del Toro presents in a lot of his films, which is talking about uh, the cyclical nature of war and violence and how it will continue to go on and on and on as long as it's perpetuated. Um, and, and something I noticed, and again, we'll, we'll talk about uh, Shape of Water just here in a moment, but also like the way he presents strong masculine uh, figures uh, in this film it's the, the general who is a uh, fascist I mean straight up he's a a classical fascist um, the way he talks to his wife the way he talks to his soldiers the way he talks to the doctor uh, and del Toro definitely seems to have a disdain for figures like this who are very authoritarian in their nature um, and it's something you can see in Devil's Backbone you can see in Pan's Labyrinth you can see uh, I mean, even in something uh, like like The Shape of Water as well. Um, but, uh, you know, Pan's Labyrinth came out in a really interesting transition uh, in Del Toro's career, because this is 2006, so he has already made The Devil's Backbone. Uh, he's already made Blade 2. Any Blade 2 fans out there? That's a great film. <laughs> 
Blade's an underrated franchise. <laughs> the book's better. <laughs> uh, but he's already he's already dabbled. He's already done some of his own projects, and he's already started making studio films. But it's it's here we we see him make a, a pretty hard sh- transition into more specifically studio filmmaking. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the themes that we see in Pan's Labyrinth that do carry over. So we have Hellboy and Hellboy Two. Those are both very pa- uh, personal projects for him, but they're also studio films. So there's a lot of compromise that goes on there. We have Pacific Rim, Rock'em Sock'em, Robots, the robot, uh, the movie, uh, the Transformers movie we always wanted but never got. Uh, <laughs> and then we've got a, a gothic romance with Crimson Peak, which is kind of his ode to Edgar Allan Poe uh, uh, poems. So I, I want to get your take. These are all dramatically different types of stories, but what do you think is the through line uh, that we, we can see looking back at his career today? I'd say the most obvious thing uh, is just the relationship between uh, humans and monsters that emerges in all of those movies, um, uh, between Hellboy and, and his enemies, between uh, them robots, and those the size of the monster obviously changes in that one. Um, kaiju. Kaiju, excuse me. Bless you. Uh, <laughs> and, and in uh, Crimson with... with uh, uh, family kind of being the monster there but um yeah that same emergence of how we deal with our demons how we deal um with the battle between good and evil is still pretty present in those movies does anything else stick out to you guys well for me i think it's it's, it's like we were saying you know he he came from you know uh late two and i think he pretty much got tired of the studio system for a bit. So he wanted to go back to his roots, you know, like with Kronos back in 93 and um, Devil's Backbone uh, um, in 2001. So I, I think that with this film, he wanted to go back to what he does best, you know, tell the stories that he wants to tell, the stories that he's got full control of um, and uh, the monsters. I think that's his passion. It's always been his passion. Uh, even when way back when he started back in Mexico, um, uh, I remember watching when I was probably like uh, eight, ten years old. Uh, he used to, uh, he was a special makeup artist for a show called uh, Laura Marcada, The Mark Tower. And he did all of his special effects at all the monsters. It was a, a nightly show that came out like uh, on a, uh, Friday nights. Wow. I, that's a fun fact. You learn something uh, the more you know. Learn something every day. Um, that's super cool. So he did start as a makeup artist. He then. started as a makeup artist. That's where he met Iñárritu and Cuarón because they all kind of in Mexico. There's only basically one um, television um, channel or like mm-hmm. one channel, one big channel. That makes it simple. Yeah. <laughs> well, now now there's another one, and now there's you know more competition. But back in the day, back in like the '80s and the early '90s, when they they all started down there, there was only one TV station per se, and and so that's where all the filmmakers kind of met and started, you know, doing their like their, their what they were passionate about. So Del Toro started out creating all the makeup for all these creatures that came out on this. It was kind of like a Twilight Zone type of show. It was amazing. It was scared of me. <laughs> I have to see that. Yeah, <laughs> gotta go YouTube those old episodes. I'm sure there's somewhere there somewhere. Um, well, you can definitely see in his career uh, starts with Kronos, and then I think Mimic came after yes. that. Yeah, so he was definitely one for himself, one for the studio, and that kind of back and forth. Uh, definitely was there right up until this film. He's been pretty much in the studio since then, Um, but I think 
beyond anything, what he's established is, is a lot of clout right now. So even though he's making these studio films, he's really getting to do them the way that he wants to. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot, you know, a lot more years pass between his projects now, uh, because, well, I, I, uh, Crimson Peak was 2015, so I guess it yeah, he's had a, his last three have been pretty quick, but there was a break there for like four or five or six years where he didn't direct uh, direct any films. Yeah, yeah, I know he's he's been trying to get the uh, uh, At the Mouth of Madness uh, adaptation done forever, um, whether it'll happen or not. Um, but I think, uh, as Nathan was saying, that the through line you're seeing with all of this is is monsters. Uh, but more specifically, um, how we're defining those monsters. Um, it, it very much reminds me, especially Hellboy 2, um, reminded me a lot of the film Nightbreed, uh, made by Clive Barker, um, which is all about how the freaks and the monsters are the good guys, and the people are the bad guys. Um, and we're definitely seeing that kind of dichotomy where the things that we think should be scary aren't. And the, the people that we should trust, like in Crinsman Peak, for instance, your husband or your family, and you can't trust these people, but the ghost is fine. that They're here to help you. Uh, you see that in Devil's Backbone, um, and you even see that... Uh, you don't see it in Pacific Rim, but <laughs> yeah, Pacific Rim is kind of the exception, right? Yeah, it's fun. We want to send a special thanks to our guests, Rogelio Almeida Jr., Nathan Poppy, and Christopher Schultz for joining our special panel on Pan's Labyrinth at the Tower Theater. Follow Nathan Poppy online at nathanpoppy.com and Christopher Schultz at christopherschultz.com. And I speak for everyone at the Cinematropolis and Planet Thunder Productions when I say that talking with these three gentlemen was a huge pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of the Cinematropolis.com. This has been a Planet Thunder Productions co-production. The Cinematic Schematic score was produced by Vinnie Hogan and the program was co-hosted and produced by Caleb Masters. Silver Screen Soliloquies was co-hosted by Laurent Chapman. Soundtrack was hosted by Alexander Bohannon with a selection from Nosferatu, 1954's Godzilla, and 2016's Arrival. Follow all of the updates for the Cinematic Schematic by liking The Cinematropolis on Facebook or following us on Twitter or Instagram at The Cinematrop. And make sure, and if you really enjoyed the show, please support us by subscribing to The Cinematic Schematic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any of the podcast applications of your choice. And please leave us a review to help get the word out through those platforms. And most of all, the biggest way you can support the show is just by sharing our posts and telling your friends about us. So please spread the word. We'll see you next month when we take a look at prestige films, past and present, as we start gearing up for the 2018 Oscar ceremony.